Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is post-production mixer and host of the Audio Nowcast podcast, Mike Rodriguez. First of all, Universal Music is thinking about going public. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that Universal Music is actually owned by the French company Vivendi. Vivendi actually got its start as a bottled water company. Hard to believe that a water company could actually take over Universal Music. Well, the fact of the matter is, Universal Music is doing really well, and in the grand scheme of things, Vivendi changed into an international digital media company. It also owns Canal Plus Television in France, video game developers Ubisoft and Gameloft, and the video streaming company Daily Motion. That being said, Universal makes more revenue than any other company in Vivendi's portfolio, makes about 46% of Vivendi's total revenue. And last year, Universal Music actually did really well. It had its best year ever at over $6 billion in revenue. So why are they considering going public? One of the reasons is what might be called the Spotify halo effect because Spotify went public and did pretty well and is still continuing to do well. It seems like the time is right to take a company like Universal, which is actually making money as compared to Spotify, which isn't, and bring them to the market because there's a lot of money that can be raised really quickly that will go into the bottom line of Vivendi, which would be a really good thing. So essentially they're thinking that this may turn out to be a $40 billion company. Pretty amazing, huh? Will this change anything in the music business? Well, maybe yes and maybe no. From the standpoint that Universal Music is already pretty corporate, it's not going to get much more corporate, but there's also the restrictions that the Securities and Exchange Commission will actually put on Universal once it goes public that it doesn't have now. So that part is a bit more limiting. That being said, everyone's pretty much already used to the fact that they're corporate. The only problem is that for the most part, public corporations don't seem to do well in the entertainment business, in any of the entertainment businesses. And as a result, the product does seem to suffer. Now we'll see what happens if Universal Music does in fact go public. It's not something that's for sure, and they haven't announced it. The only thing they've announced is that they're exploring it. But don't be surprised if, in fact, Universal Music does become a public company very soon. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop and Q&A webinars. For a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Here's something that's sort of interesting and sad at the same time. Sure has exited the phono cartridge business. So if you are trying to play a vinyl record, you need a stylus, and the stylus sits in a magnetic cartridge, and that's how it generates the voltage that eventually becomes the sound that we hear out of the speakers. Sure has been in this business almost from the beginning, for 86 years, in fact. And for the longest time, they had one of the most revered cartridges on the market, the V15. 
And that was discontinued in 2004, which is sort of the writing on the wall. The reason why they did it was because they just couldn't find the materials that they needed to continue to make the cartridge at a high level. So they discontinued it. And that's sort of happening with the rest of the line now. Although it makes you wonder if vinyl is making such a big comeback, why would a company like Sure, who's kind of owned the market for such a long time, want to abandon it? My guest this week is award-winning sound designer and mixer Mike Rodriguez, who was another of my first guests when I started the podcast four years ago. He was originally on episode 13. Mike is a senior audio mixer at Trailer Park in Los Angeles, where he mixes everything from commercials to television shows to movies to video games. He has amassed an enormous credit list that includes audio mixing for more than 260 film, television, and DVD commercials, including 21 HBO television specials and an additional 35 network and cable television series and specials. Mike is also the creator and host of the Audio Nowcast, which began in 2006, and is believed to be the longest-running audio-specific podcast on the air today. Mike and I spoke via Skype from a studio in Los Angeles. The last time we did this was four years ago, and a lot has changed since then. I know you do a lot of different types of projects. You do commercials, you do VR, you do television post. Is your approach the same? Um, the approach to mixing now is not the same. There's, there's a really big, um, the biggest change I would say in the last four years more so. And even back then, four years ago, this change was, was happening, but there is no, there's no one level for anything. You know, back in the day when I first started, even years before that, it was like, you know, minus 10 for, you know, PBS. It was PBS standards, right? But nowadays, when you do a commercial, there's a good chance that commercial's never going to see network television. It's just going to be online. So online, you have, you know, the ability to mix a little hotter. Um, when you do TV, you have, you know, the calm spec. And so you mix at the calm spec at minus 24. Um, but then you may get your commercial, you may do something for theatrical with all the advertisements that are happening um, before movies, um, depending on where you are, they call them different things, you know, in the 20 minutes beforehand. So, and then, <laughs> and then finally, you also, you're mixing for your cell phone. Cell phone's a huge, huge part and earbuds. So um, I think one of the biggest changes is that, there isn't the same approach for everything and there isn't the same level for everything. Okay. That being said, how do you do that then? Because does that, does that mean that you're always prepared to do multiple mixes and are you listening on earbuds as a result? I, I don't mix anything on earbuds per se because, um, I, I work at a, a large facility and, you know, we, we, you know, we go down to Oratowns. That's the smallest. Now, on my personal projects and side projects, sometimes I'll mix with headphones. And because of the fact that I know whatever it is that I'm working on, whether it's a YouTube or, a, a you know, an independent animation or something, I know it's mainly going to be on cell phones. It's mainly going to be um, on uh, on YouTube. And, yeah, I will actually pop in headphones just to hear what it sounds like, um, earbuds just to hear what it sounds like. But generally, you know, if you know the fact that, you know, your center is going to seem a little, a little louder and just some of the basic things about mixing headphones, anyhow, you, can, you don't necessarily have to check it all the time with earbuds. Um, 
But I tell you, the one thing is you, you know, base on your cell phone, you know, that's pretty much non-existent. So if you have a moment where you have like a, a, a bass drop, a sub hit, you know, you better have something up in the higher registers to kind of, just to kind of carry that moment. So you're not going to have holes when you um, watch it on the cell phone. Okay. So I find it very interesting that there's multiple levels. Do you get a requirement sheet then, a level requirement sh- or delivery sheet of what they need for every project then? You know, not really. There's some, there's some like industry, like there's some acceptable standards that different houses have. But like, for instance, you know, you could, if you wanted to go full bandwidth on a, on a YouTube, right? I mean, there's not a YouTube, I mean, on a, on an internet, um, you know, anything that plays on the internet, because there is no internet police for the whole thing. Although YouTube has its own, you know, it, it does what it does with its audio. Sometimes <laughs> the crazy thing is, is sometimes I'm mixing something and I'm competing against some amateur who just throws up some unmixed thing and it's all, you know, all the way up to zero. And the client's going, well, see, how come that's so much louder than yours and stuff like that? So. Yeah. There's, there's not, there's not an acceptable standards other than what you place, like whatever each house places on themselves, you know, and it's, it's in some ways, it's a little bit of the wild west and you just start pushing up, for instance, you know, where you used to have a minus 10 and then when we were mixing for a strictly DVD and, and then later on Blu-ray, all of a sudden it's like, you know what, we can mix louder. We can push it a little louder. So you start pushing it a little louder. And then you just kind of develop your own little standard in there and you just kind of go from there. Now, that being said, are you using any of the tools like from NewGen for monitoring at different specs? For instance, YouTube or Spotify in case anything plays on there or whatever, where the playback that you're getting is at those levels using those encoders and, and decoders. But obviously that might help with the client, I would think, where you'd say, okay, this is what it's going to sound like. Here's where we're mixing, but this is what it's going to end up sounding like. Do, do you use any of those tools? There's a lot of them. Well, I use, I, I do. I, one of my favorite tools to use um, is, it's actually from NewGen, and it's their, um, the, uh, you know, why is my brain going going crazy? Hold on. It's the NewGen, um it's there. Hold on one second. Let me just figure it out. Let me just remember really quick. It's basically, it's there. You know, I can't remember it either. So yeah, I know which one you mean though. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I can, I can, I'll, I'll be able to, I'll be able to, to tell you right now. It's the, holy smokes. I should just get on the internet and try to remember. That. <laughs> that's that's all right. So funny. It's in it's in my template, and uh, I'm I will I will look it up before I'm done. Anyhow, um, I use the new gen to check to check all my um, broadcast mixes because two things: number one, those are the ones that are the most strict. Um, so those are the ones where I really need to you know you really need to um, L incorrect. That's what it is. Oh uh, yeah, incorrect. Right. Um, those are the ones. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what happens when you catch me at the end of the day, Bobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, LM Correct I use all the time because, um, especially when I'm doing network stuff, because they're very specific and they will kick it back. And so you just got to make sure you hit everything. And, it, it's, and it's actually, it's a nice little, uh, a nice little safety net. Um, but yes, I do use that. As far as like, if I'm mixing something that's going to go, um, 
YouTube, if I'm doing something for like YouTube Red or something like that, then I know I can mix it a little hotter. And I, and I kind of know what a little hotter means on my end. And I just kind of always deliver. And a lot of times you're just delivering until you get kicked back. Like, uh, this got kicked back and we, nothing gets kicked back. So as long as nothing gets kicked back, that's all the client really, you know, that's the most important thing. Does it, does it make it to the air? They don't want your audio. You don't want audio to slow them down, right? You don't, that's the one thing you don't want to slow them down. You don't want to have it out of spec. You don't want to have it too loud. You don't want to have it too soft. You always want to deliver right there. Now, that being said, all networks used to have their own slightly different spec. But now with the Comact, as you say, it should be the same. But I haven't done this for a long time, so I'm not sure. Is there a difference between what a network wants? Um, no, basically, you know, as long as we're all mixing for, for calm, uh, we, I've never, I've never gotten anything to kick back. I've never gotten anything kicked back for a calm act violation. Um, now I'm sure that, you know, they would, if you did, but you know, I find as long as you stay plus or plus two or minus two DB from, uh, from the minus 24 spec, then you're, you're pretty safe. You're pretty calm. As long as you're not peaking over minus six then you're, you're golden. And really it's, it's not that difficult to stay within that, you know, um, that range. So you do it once you're set up for network across the board. What gets crazy is when you have, you know, if you're doing a special event or something and you're doing a sizzle reel and they want some crazy spec, then (laughs) it gets a little, a little weird, but even still, I'll just, I would just put everything at, on a column and then if they need it, you know, whatever spec they, they need, then I'll just uh, raise the actual um, audio file, the actual gain of the audio file to meet whatever it is. So generally um, it's, it's actually easier now than it's ever been to deliver um, on spec. Do you strap a limiter across your mix bus in order to make sure that the peaks are controlled and never oh, yeah. go beyond the spec? What are you using? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I like the, uh, the L3, mm-hmm. um, from waves for me, it's all, I've grew up with waves. So I've, I've used the, um, the low latency. Um, I like the multi-maximizer because, uh, it just gives me a little bit more control and that kind of just keeps the, uh, keeps the peaks, the peaks in line. And then on, on each individual channel, if I need to, I can also put some dynamic processing on there. Um, but, you know, I kind of like transients because that's what defines your sound. So, you know, you try not to squish every single track and then squish every single track again. And I know there are, you know, mixers that, you know, will put a hard limiter across all their tracks and then, uh, and then, you know, do a master on their bus and which is fine. I mean, if they get great results out of that, then, you know, they get great results out of that. I, I just, for me, I tend to just like to have it a little bit more open and not as, not as squished. And it's mainly, you know, you're mainly controlling your, your, your peaks and you're controlling those transients. Those transients are, are the ones that kill you because those are the ones that that energy just comes ramping up, you know, and just, that's why it's a peak. It just hits really hard. So as long as you can kind of control those peaks, you know, there's all kinds of great tools that, that, you know, you can use to do that. I, I mean, if I was in a perfect world, I'd probably use an API 2500 just because I love what it does with the thrust and you don't lose any of the high end and yet you can control, you know, all those, all those transients. Okay. That being said, when you're mixing a network show, for instance, do you have a signal chain that you always would use on dialogue that you just know works? 
a lot of the stuff I do with dialogue is with commercials and with commercials, you can be a little down and dirty because we have to get them through quick and fast. So, you know, I, I do have a, uh, you know, a chain of, you know, using everything. I've used everything from just the regular, um, did you, I mean, the regular pro tools, um, channel strip to, um, sometimes I'll just throw a, a new, compressor just because I want to hear what it does, you know, and you can always get the Renaissance compressor and and start with their dialogue setting there and then, and then work it. Um, now for um, like uh, feature films or, or a feature documentary, um, like I just finished mixing, um, you really can't go wrong um, using um, tools like that, but also using like when you really want to clean up everything and you want to, you know, just make sure everything is pristine you know, RX now on their leveler, it does such a great job and you're going to be in it anyhow because you're cleaning up all your dialogue. Yeah. You might as well, you know, level it out with that too. And I, I think RX is just, to me, that is, you know, talk about changes in the last four years. RX has just come on strong and they're doing some things that are just phenomenal. I mean, just like, wow, stuff that back in the day, you know, you just say, well, kind of is what it is. But now, dialogue is so clean because you can clean it up with a with a tool like RX. I have a really good friend that's a dialogue editor for. I think he's working on The Flash now, but he's always worked on top ten shows. It's interesting because he's always complaining about the horrible audio that field audio that he gets in that has just been recorded badly because you know everybody has the idea that oh well he'll just clean it up with RX. Yeah, exactly. I, I see that. That's actually, I, I totally sympathize with him because I see that all the time. It's amazing some of the audio that comes in. But also, you got to hand it to RX. It, it cleans a lot of this stuff up and you're like, holy smokes, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I was, I was, you know, ambient match, ambient match, love. It's just, it's just, it's just, a, it's a miracle worker. You can... You can take your dialogue and just do some really great things um, with it. And the EQ matching and, and, you know, for ADR, all that. It's just the leveling. It's such a great tool. Um, I tell people, I used to say, okay, you want to be employed, um, learn Pro Tools. And I still, I still say that. I still tell people when they come up and, you know, what I need to do to, to work in audio. I say, well, learn Pro Tools. It's the industry standard here in the U.S. And, and if you know Pro Tools, you can and you can work it well. You could probably get a job. But now it's like you want to get hired, learn Pro Tools and learn RX because then you'll get hired. If you can clean up audio and do drastic, drastic um, cleanups and give them a before and the after, you're going to get hired. Let's go there for a second. I know we talk about this on Audio Nowcast a lot, but. Let's just talk about digital audio workstations for a second. And of course, Pro Tools still rules the roost. Right. And especially given that we just went through a very interesting NAM slash AES show. Yeah. Are you seeing anything new coming on that people are beginning to look at and go, oh, that might be interesting? Well, I'll tell you, the two most interesting things that have happened and when it comes to that, number one, Fairlight being bought by black magic and they're giving it away for free. Yeah. That to me is, is that's, that's going to be a game changer because you're going to see a small little place that doesn't have to buy pro tools that can work with audio. Um, 
and get a free fair light. Now, back in the day, you know how expensive the fair light was, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. $60,000, $50,000. Um, so now you get the software for free. And Fairlight, Fairlight did things um, better than Pro Tools back in the day that Pro Tools is just now starting, like auto crossfades and things like that. I mean, it did all this really cool stuff back in the day. So now, if you can, if you can get it for free, um, that to me is... Is it going to be a game changer? I, I'm wondering how long that's going to take, but I do know more and more people are like, hey, let's, let me look at Fairlight. And that's for post-production. Now, on the music side of things, um, Cakewalk Sonar just got released again, got resurrected, and that's being given away free also. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I, I actually posted it on the Audio Nowcast uh, Facebook page. Um, I read about that, and... It's the, they, they, um, brought it back. Band lab. Yeah. Sure enough. Yep. And, uh, and sure enough, you can get it, uh, you get it for free. So having said that, like I've worked with Sonar, I read the, um, <laughs> the audio now cast. Um, the very first, um, theme was just a test that I did with Sonar when I first got it. And it ended up being the theme song for a couple of years till I got somebody who was really good to redo the theme song. Um, but you know, it, it's just another, another tool that's out there that people don't have to pay for. That's really strong, really powerful, and you can get some work done. So those are the two big, big developments I think that are really going to reshape the whole DAW, the whole landscape to kind of see what happens, you know? And then you can't forget logic is, is still there and Apple's, you know, put it, put a ton of, of, uh, new features in that. So it's really interesting. I'm really, I'm really wondering to see, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to see and wondering what's going to happen with like the pro tools, especially with avid beans down in their, uh, stock price and, and how that's going to affect it. But the thing about Avid and Pro Tools is it's it's like a cockroach, man. It just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> so it's really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, you know, it's funny because there's lots of really great digital audio workstations out there now. The Harrison Mix Bus to me sounds just fabulous. Every time I listen to it, I feel like it's a real console. You know, they got it knocked. Right, and it looks good. Yeah. It looks good. I like the way I like the way that looks. It's like it's really cool looking, you know? And it's cheap. Yeah, but here's the thing. I want to use it. I really do. But the fact of the matter is, I'm so stuck in Pro Tools and I know what's going to happen. If this goes to anybody else, whatever I'm working on or something I'm getting in, you know, it's just impractical right now. If whatever it was, if there was a new DAW that suddenly everybody started to use and forced me to do it, I would. But it would take that. And I bet I'm not the only one that, you know, will move if forced but it was going to take a mountain to move first for me anyway. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I agree. Like I, I come back to pro tools. I work on pro tools. I've been working on pro tools eight hours a day for over 20 years. Pro tools is kind of de, de facto standard, but having said that, you know, just because I'm a nerd about these things, you know, I know Cubase. I worked on new one. I worked on all of them. I have logic and I have, you know, and I'm going to be <laughs> installing, um, sonar and and sometimes I for me personally I can get creative you know in in different ways like live for me 
when I write, I love writing and and live because it's just a a really cool, um, the loop based, and I can I'm fast and I just know how it is. But I can't I can't get into mixing, so I usually export all my tracks and I find myself going back to Pro Tools to mix. Yeah. Um, but I've also worked in Logic and the same thing. I can write in Logic, but I just mixing wise, I still love mixing and, and Pro Tools. So it, it comes, it goes from Logic into that. Yeah. Um, and then I, FL Studio. I love FL Studio. I think it's the most unique, great. It just makes you think a little different. And and the same thing though. I'll end up <laughs> I'll end up mixing in Pro Tools. So it's you know I just think I think you have to be flexible enough for different tools and, and then, you know, learn one really well, um, learn one really well, but don't be afraid to learn, you know, some of the other things cause they'll spark in different ways. Even studio one, I, I got studio one like last year. Um, and, and that has a, a whole, a whole nother workflow about it. No, no. I just think all of these different workflows can kind of combine to, you know, your creativity. Russ over at pro tools expert, told me about a year ago we were talking about this very same subject and you know of course he runs pro tools expert and logic expert and studio one expert and you know like five different flavors of that and he said that the one that was really taking off that had the most activity where there's the most going on and the most growth was studio one i mean that tells you something i and this was last year i don't know if that's still the case but i see more and more people talking about it and liking it well, and, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of people bang for their buck and I know Studio One gives you a really good bang for your buck and, and I can see why it does that. Now I happen to, I happen to have the luxury of, of not being on any type of deadline when I compose any music because I'm just not that good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's mainly just a, just a hobby. So my bread and butter is Pro Tools. And so, yes, I know how to, that's where I make my living. But I can understand some other guys who, you know, they need to compose and they need to, you know, they get, they get paid. And that's how they make their living. And, and I, I can see them spending some time doing all these and then just picking whatever works, does their workflow. A really good friend of mine, um, well, you know, Brandon, he, uh, sure. he's all live. He's he does everything in live and he works live. Like I've never seen anybody, his results that he gets out of it is just so phenomenal. And I just learned so much from him on, on, on working in live as, as much as he does. So I don't know. It, there's just, there's so many out there. They're all great. It's like, it's like living in the middle of a parking lot that has all these great high end, you know, exotic cars. <laughs> They're all good. And they all have their plus and they all have their minus. And I just like driving them all. Okay. Well, speaking of gear and you're one of the biggest gear lovers that I know. It, <laughs> and I'm going to say gear lovers because you do have this innate love for gear appreciation for what it will do. And I say that in a way where I look at you sometimes and I can see the love in your eyes for a cheap Chinese mic that I see very few other places. So I appreciate <laughs> that, I have to say. So let's talk about trends in gear. You know, DAWs aside, what do you see the, the latest trends in gear? I mean, just looking over the industry and NAM and, and everything, do you see anything that's coming on strong, more people using this and not using this or going this way or that way or... 
or something in the future? Well, I, I first of all, thank you for the compliment on gear. I, I do like gear. I, I like, I do like the tool set, the creative tool set, whether it's, you know, music or film or whatever. I think people who make gear to help other people create, it's just, there's just a, a special place for them in heaven because um, they're as much of the creative process, I think, as, as the artist. Because if they didn't invent the tools, then the artist wouldn't have anything to, to use. So that's where my appreciation for gear comes from. Um, aside from like trends in gears, I think one of the, one of the cool things about gear right now is, is the, you don't hear too much about the argument in the box, out of the box, you know, that whole thing, analog versus digital. I think we've come to a place where we know they both are important and they both can play well together. Um, although one unique thing about the whole digital versus analog, I guarantee you, mix in the box and do your whole mix in the box. Do whatever you're going to do, all your plugins and everything. And at the very end, take your stereo bus and run it through a high-end piece of analog gear and just watch the magic that happens. You know, there's just something that it'll just make it just a little, oof, whether it's a little rounder in the base, a little more open up top. Um, so having said that, it's not that it's better or worse. It's just, it does something and it does something different. And I think that's one of the cool things about gear nowadays is you see modular synths coming back and they're coming back, you know, really strong. And you see all these um, reissues of all these classic synthesizers, which between you, me and the wall and your nine listeners, Bobby, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, some of these reissues, like some of these keyboards that they're reissuing, they 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 didn't sound that great back then. <laughs> yeah, <You> know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we romanticize some of this stuff, but I don't know. I love I love hardware. I love you know I love keyboards. Like there's certain analog manufacturers like Dave Smith, for instance, instruments. I love all their stuff. Like that stuff is just great. Some of the other keyboards that they come out, you're like, mm, give me a plug in. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's just texture, you know, think how important texture is nowadays. Um, as opposed to if you listen to any of the electronic music, you know, back in the eighties, it just didn't have that textural warmth and that textural loveliness that we have nowadays with, with the plugins and, and with sample manipulation and even with the mixing. So, um, I don't know. I love that. I love the, that, that appreciation for analog that, that we have nowadays. And, and I just think it's really kind of cool. You know, people don't argue They you look at pictures of even in, uh, pictures on some of the DAW manufacturers website, you know, you'll see keyboards, but then you'll see a rack full of gear. And that's great. It's pretty awesome. You know, it's funny because one of the things that I noticed is that people that seem to romanticize analog, and I'm talking about tape and, and everything else, they didn't experience it. They weren't there back in the day to understand that there were just as many downsides to it and maybe more than there were upsides. And the sound maybe wasn't the upside that everybody thinks it is or was. So I just had a conversation about this earlier when we were talking about tape. 
with, with somebody who owns tape machines and doesn't use them and says, and, and the conversation was, you know, I just pulled a 16 track two inch out of something I did a long time ago and I listened to it and I thought, well, it's not as good as what I can do now. <laughs> it doesn't sound as good. So there we go back to, we think it sounded one way back then and it really didn't, but we have stars in our eyes for certain types of gear or certain gear. Yours, I, I tell you, I, I totally agree with that statement. It's like some stuff, you know, just wasn't as good as we think. Even, you know, and this is going to be blasphemous to a lot of people, but even recordings that, you know, people say were, were so amazing back then. But if you listen to them, you're like, well, you know, that same band, if they were alive today, would have even a better sound because of the technology is just able to do it a little bit better, you know? Sure. So just, I don't know. You just got to keep it all in perspective. It doesn't make it any less awesome. doesn't make it any less, you know, amazing. Um, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, September is still a fabulously amazing song, but it doesn't have a lot of bass. Yeah, there's no bottom end. Yeah, right. <laughs> you think of Earth, Wind & Fire, and you think of the funk and the groove, and then you listen to their, to their songs, there's not a lot of bass there. So could you imagine what, you, what they could have done nowadays with with the bass that you have, the bass recording that you have, you know, the way you can capture that level. Ken Scott told me that, uh, and we had this conversation once, and he said, you know, way back when, he's talking like the 60s and 70s, we didn't care about the bass. No one could hear it on their playback, so we didn't care about it. That was a big part of it, I think. And if they could hear it, they knew that nobody else could, so it's like, well, why concentrate on it? Different now, of course, because everybody demands it. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And, and, you know, growing up, it's not like I ever missed a bass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, it, for me, it was all, you know, <laughs> mid-range. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have a really great, uh, I didn't have a great stereo system to listen to music on. It was mainly the radio pumped into a giant speaker that I wired up to, uh, to this little, little transistor radio that I had. And that was I try to listen to a lot of music, um, but yeah. So yeah, right. Um, to add on what you were saying, yeah, some of the stuff that we romanticize, you know, it's not as great as people think. But having said that, you know, I think this generation that's coming up, they kind of have to go through that same that same journey that a lot of us went on. Like I started off with an EMU modular synthesizer um, in my electronic music course when I was in college and even then it was old, it was already about 10 years out of date, but that's how I learned. That's how I learned what a, what an oscillator does and that, what a filter does, you know, and an envelope filter and ADSR and all that stuff. So, you know, you can't fault the generation to, that once they get into, you know, modular sense and learn all about that and the technology is a lot better. So even their raw oscillation is just going to sound better. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, the modular synths, because I wanted to talk to you about this. I'm always amazed at the number of new modules that are coming out and at the buzz around modular synths at NAM, especially. And it seems like it's so hot. Yet, I never hear of people using it on records. I don't see anything. I never read about people using it on records. It seems like it's so experimental and so DIY. What's your take on that? Well, I think... I think they're out there. Um, you just have to, you, you gotta look like, for instance, one of the best concerts that I've seen 
um, this year, actually it was last year, but let's just pretend we'll count a year from today, um, was LCD sound system. And they had a modular sense touring rig. Um, and it just, you know, I think it's out there. I, I, um, if you look for it, especially with, you know, with some of the electronic groups and things like that, I personally, for me, um, I like looking at them, but I don't think I would buy my own rack. I know Nick, you know, our good friend, Nick Peck, he has, he's got into it and he's jumped in full force. And I, I think it's great. Well, why wouldn't you do it? You love synthesizers. Why wouldn't you do that? I, I love sense, but you know, I just keep it in, I don't know. I, there's so many great like plugins and there's so many other things and other keyboards and, and I'm very, the way my lifestyle is and traveling and things like that. I like to take my stuff with me. So I'm really big into creating like when I go on trips and things like that. So it's just so convenient to have, um, you know, yeah. plugins. Yeah. And seriously, there's some, amazing vfts and and uh audio units and and there's just a, there's just so many great you know plugins that make some really great sounds you know whether it's serum or um you know omnisphere or any of the really popular ones it's, there's just a lot of things like that and and that's kind of more i i, I like the aesthetic of, a, of of textures and i like that kind of a sound um, but I'm not anti, um, you know, racks and, and modulars and things like that. Mm -hmm. okay. I just, I just think for, for me, it's, I kind of been there, done that a long time ago, not really looking to go back. At the AES show that just passed, you gave a couple of talks, a couple of sessions on dealing with people and they were excellent. Everybody raved about them and hopefully You'll reprise that someday. But in the meantime, can you kind of explain what your philosophy is? Sure. Um, well, the, the AES talk that I gave was getting your first, keeping your job, getting your first job by being a nice guy. It was as simple as that. And basically the whole premise of, of my talk was that with the tools that we've been talking about, with the technology that we've been talking about, the playing field is really getting to be pretty even, you know, um, what used to take a really great ear and a lot of time and talent, unfortunately with technology, you can kind of, you can kind of buy your way into it. If you have the right kind of plugins, I'm not saying you can buy talent, but you can definitely start buying more and more quality. Um, and a perfect example is, uh, look at, um, ozone. Now ozone's never going to, you know, it's never going to replace a really good mastering engineer, but it's going to make your music sound better. You know, if you're not a mastering engineer, if you just know how to finesse it. So then it's like, okay, well, if the playing field's getting to be kind of even, what's going to separate me from the pack. And the thing that separates you from the pack is you, is me, is, is you as a person. And so my talk is basically um, just helping people to learn how to work the room. You know, and you gotta, you gotta, if you learn how to work the room, then you're going to be able to be employed because people want to work with people that they like. 
And what makes them like you? Well, for instance, one of the big philosophies, one of the big things that I really believe in is the fact that a lot of times the client, you know, they're just, they're just looking for affirmation. They're looking for affirmation on their project. Now, obviously they're looking for a good mix. Don't get me wrong. But um, a lot of times they just want something or someone to feel confident in. So if I have a client that comes in and they have confidence in me that when they leave, it's going to be good. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Then guess what? They're just going to keep coming back to me. And I've, I have clients that I've worked with for 20 years that um, I know that's kind of their big thing is, is when we first started working, they were just kind of, they just wanted to have some confidence and they were like, okay, it's going to pass QC and it's going to be okay. And it's going to sound great, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know, whether you do the job or not, some of that stuff is just how you are in the room, you know, how you, how you um, conduct yourself. For instance, a real big thing is never say no to the client. Just make them change their yes, you know, <laughs> and that's a big deal yeah. because if you say no to a client and if you fight with a client and they basically give up and do it your way. Um, for instance, if we're doing a, uh, a TV commercial, this actually happened. I was working with a client that I used to work with and we were watching a TV commercial and they were pissed when this certain sound effect came in because they wanted one sound effect and the mixer wanted another sound effect. And they were basically going back and forth about, you know, why it had to be like this and couldn't be like that. It was all that. Hey, the mixer may have been a hundred percent correct. You know, it, the other one may not have cut through there. There could have been a gazillion things that that mixer was right. But the problem was, is the client hates that guy because every time he sees it, he sees a battle that he lost. Would have been way better if that mixer would have been able to convince that client to change his mind and to, you know, like what the mixer wanted to do. And there's techniques that you, you can use to do that, you know? So that's basically what I spoke about. I just gave people some tips and I just, you know, I really want people to understand that, you know, you can still um, break out from the pack by just developing your own style of how you work the room and giving confidence to the clients and just, you know, just learning a few basic things that, um, that will help you um, be successful in, you know, whatever mixed situation you find yourself in. Let's talk about audio nowcast for a second, because now it's entering its 13th year. You're the host and put it together. And it's amazing that anything could last for that long. I'd look at it in admiration and look at you in admiration for sticking with it for all these years because it's difficult. It's like herding cats, <laughs> as you well know. Just to, <laughs> if you're doing it by yourself, it's one thing. And that's fairly easy to do. And, and, you know, I can attest to that, to the way it works. But when you have a round table of people that you have to get every time, plus a guest, that's very difficult. So 13 years. Wow. Good on you, man. That was, that's really difficult. You know, you played a big part of that. So thank you for the, for the compliment. In those 13 years, how many episodes is it? 195? Uh, 191. We just posted 191. Okay. So in all of those episodes, was there one that really sticks out to you where you think, wow, that was just the most awesome. I hope we can beat this sometime. 
Wow. You know, I, that's really, believe it or not, I've never even thought about that <laughs> because usually I, I, there's, we've had so many good ones and then we've had so many not so good ones. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say not so good, but, but just the ones that are really great are the ones that I walk away just, just feeling pumped and just ready to, to conquer the world. And, and there is a couple really good shows, but we've done so many. I, I couldn't even, I, to be honest, Bobby, I, I can't even, can't even remember them all. I do remember we had one where we had a doctor on and that was really kind of fun talking about, about health. And then I do remember Ken Scott when he was first on, um, that was really great because it's a Beatles engineer and, um, and uh, we had Joe Ciccarelli on and, and, uh, and then Andrew Sheps when he used to be on, we had some really good ones before he moved. And so there's just, I don't know. I, I can't say that there's one in particular, uh, to be honest, I, I like them all, you know, some of them hit stronger than others, but I think all of them are, are worth a, a fun little listen because I, I think we have a, a perspective that's unique. And so, yeah, I don't know if it's, it's like saying, <laughs> I know it's cliche, but do you have a favorite kid? Yeah. You know, I always tell people that what's interesting is the fact that there's a number of people from different audio disciplines. So Yes. That means that there's different perspectives, maybe on the same particular topic. But that being said, sometimes what's the most fun to me is when it goes off topic and goes down the rabbit hole and everybody follows, but yet it maybe is going in a more interesting direction the way it started, but that you didn't expect. I mean, it happens here too. Absolutely. That's, that's half the fun. I mean, when I started the Audio Nowcast, I, I really wanted to get uh, a roundtable, and I knew I was always going to have a, a select number of panel participants, and then if we, when we get a guest, we can bring a guest in. But I wanted that the interaction. And I will say that, you know, I've, I've just been lucky that I put together a superstar panel. I mean, all the panelists, are, they're just the top of the game. And I, I just, I feel really fortunate. I mean, when you get somebody like yourself, Bobby, you know, you're just, you know, your, your pedigree and everything that you bring is just so amazing. And you get someone like Rob, who's just brilliant. You get, you know, Scott Gershon, his sound design, and you bring Nick in with his, uh, with what he's doing with them. You know, uh, apps and audio, and and then you you bring in Diego when he comes in every now and then. It's just it's just a lot of superstars, and I just find it, you know, I still get blown away that everybody shows up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'll put a I'll put a call out, and it's like, okay, yeah, 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 and and I mean, because of that, I I just feel like I want to make it worth their while. So just to bring them out there, just to have a really good conversation, and and just to have fun, and that's what it's really about. It's about fun, and we're all kind of going through this journey. I find the one thing about the podcast that's really surprised me over all these years is just how much has changed and how much the changes have affected every single person around that table. You know, we've all had to figure out ways to make money and, and how to how to have a career. And I think that's what's really awesome about everybody there is the fact that they're all been in the audio industry a super long time and they've all had careers that are successful. And just to see everybody's little, you know, dodge and turn and, and how they how they weave in and out and what they do. It's it's pretty pretty interesting. And the conversations are interesting for me too. 
Well, it's like multiple careers. I think everybody's gone through that I know. I mean, there's some exceptions. Andrew, for instance, has always done pretty much. Well, no, not even for Andrew because he, he's had multiple careers as well. Yeah. It's interesting, but you're right. When I think back, and of course I've been, I think I started in episode 92, somewhere in there. Yeah. You were in, you, yeah, it's been like seven years or eight years or something like that. But when I think back through my time as well, again, as you say, the multiple turns and the multiple valleys that everybody's gone through because, uh, valleys and, and hills, because of the industry and just following whatever the trend is or whatever's happening in the industry and having to roll with the punches, so to speak. And we've all done it and maybe not at the same time, but we've all done it nonetheless. So that's kind of cool. And you've seen it even more going over 13 years. So that's excellent, Mike. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, um, well, it's 12 years. We're starting at the 13th year. Okay. But it's, it's been really interesting just to see how, how it's changed. But I'll tell you, it's actually been really kind of fun too um, to see the fact that in some ways, you know, you get a group of guys like we have in the podcast, how valuable it is for people to create their own podcast circle. Not that they have to go out there and, uh, you know, and, and broadcast. I mean, they can obviously, but I think the, the one thing about the podcast for me personally is, is that's my network. You know, I, I talk to, you know, as you know, I talk to you, Bobby, you know, when, when we're not podcasting, I talk to Rob, I talk to everybody and, and just to see, I know people have worked on different projects and, and there's been a lot of cross employment and stuff like that. And, and that to me is, is a really great thing about the podcast is just to see the dynamics of all the panel members kind of going back and forth and whether it's, you know, Bobby Summerfield tracking drums for Martin or, you know, or Scott doing sound design with, with Rob and things like that. It, it shows people the importance of, of having your, uh, having your network. And that, that's been pretty cool just to kind of see that, that interaction, you know, happen between everybody. Audionowcast.com. Anybody wants to listen to it or wants to listen to past episodes. They're, they're great. They're a lot of fun. You know, you'll laugh a lot because we always do. Audio Nowcast. Yeah, there's a lot of laughing. I'll tell you, one of my proudest moments uh, of the podcast, though, was, uh, was I think it was episode 33 when I totally called, when I first got my iPhone, and I just totally called it and, and just made the call. As I knew how important that iPhone was going to be to to the music industry and with apps and with things like that. And it was kind of crazy when I listened to it again. Again, it's just like, wow, that was like, that was pretty crazy just to be able to, to make that call. But it made such a big impact on me, maybe because I was such a gearhead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question, Mike. Something that I didn't ask you the first time around. And that's why I actually wanted you to come back on because I, I value your opinion and value your expertise and experience. What been the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or Maybe somebody imparted to you. I don't know if it's necessarily business advice that I that I've uh, that I got, but for me, it's been more um, I've learned from other people and and watching them. For instance, um, the podcast we're going to start doing some things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing some video stuff. We've got other things happening, and I just think um, now's the time to do all these different projects and to try to market things and, and try to monetize some of this stuff. 
And I see, you know, as an example, for instance, you, Bobby, and I've seen what you've done with, with what your little empire is and the fact that you're podcasting now and you have the courses and you have things like that. And to me, that that's always been, I've always been impressed by that. And that's something I've always wanted to do. And now I'm getting to the point where I'm going to, you know, start going down that road. And, and I just think it's just, you know, you might as well go for it. You might as well do it. The way technology is, it's such a low buy-in on some of this stuff that why not? Why not do it? Because um, advice-wise, I've always worked for a post-production or I've always worked for, a, you know, when I was touring for different, you know, bands and different management companies. But now seeing other people go out on their own and doing their own thing and even looking at like Andrew and his plugins with Waves and, and stuff, I just think for me personally, just, Seeing my friends do some really fun, interesting stuff is, is, is inspiring for me to, to do some of the same things. Well, I have to say, I'm super impressed with the videos that you produce. You have a talent that is just blows my mind. It's as good as anything I've seen. Every time you show me something, I, I go, wow, that, that's just amazing. Especially the thing that you showed me recently that you shot in your iPhone. I couldn't believe how good, and edited on the iPhone. I couldn't believe how good it looked. It was like, wow, how does he do this? It's excellent. Oh, dude, you, you know what it is? It's what not a lot of people know is I went to film school because originally, like everybody else in Hollywood, I wanted to be a director. <laughs> oh, well, that explains it. Okay. You have a background in it. Here, I thought you were an audio guy who just kind of picked it up vicariously. You know what? It was like growing up, I was, I was you know, I was going back and forth between wanting to be you know, camera guy or audio guy, camera guy or audio guy. So uh, audio guy, don't get me wrong. Uh, audio has been a big part of my life and I made the right decision, but now it's time to at least make some of that money. I paid for my education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want to find out more about Mike and the audio Nowcast podcast, you can go to nowcastnetwork.com, nowcastnetwork.com, N-O-W-C-A-S-T, network all one word.com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com to listen to the episodes of bobby osinski's inner circle go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com or find it on itunes stitcher mixcloud and google play at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts this is bobby osinski i will see you next time <laughs>